Hello, and welcome to NACLA Radio. I'm your host, Helen Hazelwood-Isaac. The latest issue of the NACLA Report, Black Lives Matter Across the Hemisphere, explores the connections between racial justice movements across the Americas and their impact. Today, I'm speaking with contributor Devin Spence-Benson, a professor of Africana and Latin American Studies at Davidson College, whose article in the report is titled, Conflicting Legacies of Anti-Racism in Cuba. Devin, hi, how are you? Hi, I'm doing well, Helen. I'm great, excited to be here with you. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, so your article is largely a history of uh, anti-racism and racism in Cuba, and it's um, the entry point is kind of the, the recent death of Fidel Castro and, and conflicting responses to that death. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your experience as an academic and, and covering this topic and uh, kind of what brought you to write about this subject for the NACLA report. That's a great question. In many ways, the piece that I have in the NACLA report for this issue comes out of my recent book, Anti-Racism in Cuba, The Unfinished Revolution, that was published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2016. And the book was growing out of my doctoral research. I'm a graduate of the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill's Latin American History Program. And I was interested in understanding the ways that conversations about race and debate about racial equality continued and sort of moved from the early period in Cuban history of sort of like slavery and the wars for independence all the way through the revolutionary period. In many ways, I was building on the work that's been done by historians before me because we have really great histories and rich histories about slave rebellions in Cuba, about the abolition of slavery in Cuba, work by Aisha Finch and Rebecca Scott and Matt Childs. We also have a lot of really great work about activism and black political activism and during the Cuban Republic from 1902 to 1958 work by Melina Papademos about black social clubs and black elites, work by Frank Garitti about how Afri- Afro-Cubans and African-Americans forged and really created diaspora. So we have a lot of that work, but what we didn't have was sort of an in-depth study into the early years of the revolution. So the, the book that I just published and the piece that I did for NACLA come out of my interest in wanting to understand more about what happens in that early 1960s period when Fidel Castro and the revolutionary leadership first say that they're going to eliminate racial discrimination. So I was interested in why did they make this turn to include that in one of their new platforms as early as March of 1959. And I wanted to look at the, the steps and what I call the missteps of that campaign against racial discrimination. In many ways, this seeks to answer one of the questions, the pressing questions that many um, Cuban intellectuals and especially Afro-Cuban activists on the island have been working with recently, which is how is it that since the fall of the Soviet Union, there appears to be what people call the return of racism. One of the things that my book does is it even questions this idea of the return of racism thesis because it wants to say, well, maybe what we need to think about is how racism and anti-racism coexisted even during the height of revolutionary change. So the book and the piece of Fernacla sort of come out of trying to answer that question is, why do we see so much racism today in Cuba if the revolutionary leadership did all the things that most people say that you need to do to fight racism, right? Um, employment reforms, education reforms, healthcare reforms, incorporating Afro-Cubans into the nation as full citizens. All of these things happen, and yet we still have the sort of persistence of racial discrimination and racial prejudices. And my book seeks to answer that question and talk about the contradictions that existed from the very beginning around race in Cuba. 
In the article, you talk specifically about images and how even when, <clears throat> excuse me, even when the revolutionary leaders in in the uh, late fifties and early sixties were uh, towing this line of of racelessness and and uh, implementing all of these structural changes that you that you just mentioned, uh, there were political cartoons and and. Um, various images circulating Cuba at that time that undercut uh, this idea of racelessness or this um, this move against structural racism by uh, perpetuating cultural ideas about black people and black Cubans as being, um, you say, savage, childlike. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit just about how images have played into your research and and uh, and what you think about kind of images as as a way of understanding an undercurrent or or perhaps not an explicitly stated uh racism but one that is that is clearly still a powerful force one of the sources that was the most rich that really I aided in my research as I was doing it for the book as well as for the piece for NACLA was Cuban newspapers. So throughout the early 1960s, I was looking at a variety of Cuban newspapers between 10 and 15, both in Havana, but also in provinces outside of Havana. And one of the things that I was struck by was that it was very clear that one of the things that happens with the campaign against racial discrimination is that Fidel Castro, but also other revolutionary leaders are putting a conversation about race right in the headlines. There are a number of headlines that are published after the March 1959 speech when they first announced the campaign against racial discrimination that are talking about solidarity with blacks in the United States, so solidarity with black brothers in the United States, that talk about the importance of eliminating racism, that talk about how Cuba is more than white, more than black, it's all Cuban, all these different ideas. Like Literally, they're talking about how important it is that one of the four battles of the revolution will be to eliminate racial discrimination. At the same time, you have also revolutionaries, cartoonists who are part of M267, the 26th of July movement, who had fought with Fidel Castro and other revolutionary leaders in the Sierra Maestra. Like you have cartoonists who are working for many of these, uh, many of these Cuban newspapers, and they're set, they're drawing images that are supposed to reflect and go along with and potentially maybe critique the statements that are being made by revolutionary leaders. And so I found the interplay between political cartoons and revolutionary rhetoric, like official speeches, statements, um, and claims about anti-racism to be the, mo- the place where I could see many of the contradictions that I wanted, that the book ends up talking about. And that is namely that the caricatures that you would see in cartoons, like you said before, were represented using the images that we know from minstrelsy, that we also know of the ways that blacks were represented in, in political cartoons before the revolution. So one thing is that we recognize that 1959 isn't a stark contrast in representations of blackness. The very same images of big eyes, um, large lips, um, uh, drawn as children, you know, negative stereotypical minstrel-like images were used in Cuba previously, and then they continue to be used in the early 60s. So maybe the best example is that I have a chapter in the book that talks about when Fidel Castro and the Cuban delegation to the United Nations um, go for that first United Nations meeting in September of 1960. While they're there for that September 1960 United Nations meeting, because of mistreatment as well as restrictions around their movement um, in their initial hotel, which was a hotel in Manhattan, the whole delegation moves to a black hotel in Harlem. They move to the Hotel Teresa. 
While they're in the Hotel Teresa, you've got 80 Cubans who've now set up Harlem and this hotel as sort of a center of world relations. Khrushchev comes to visit. Um, the new presidents of independent African countries come to visit Fidel Castro and his delegation in the Hotel Teresa. But also African-American leaders come to visit. So there's a sort of iconic image of Malcolm X and Fidel Castro sitting together in this hotel talking while they're there. All the actual print press about this in Cuba is references of solidarity. So we're in solidarity with the civil rights movement. We're in solidarity with our black brothers. Look how Fidel is welcomed in Harlem, just like he's welcomed in Cuba. These are the types of discourses that were going on about that conversation. But at the same time, the cartoons, especially these cartoons while Castro was in Harlem, really painted a picture of African-Americans. And because they were using images that had been used about Afro-Cubans too, I would say all people of African descent as infantile, comical, savage, and in need of aid. Because the, And I can't even imagine what it would look like to have on one page the picture of Castro sitting with um, Malcolm X, and on another page, an image of him sort of patting a small black caricature on the head. But that's the type of interplay between black representations of blackness and language of anti-racism that was happening. I've talked about this as sort of old Cuba, but in new packaging. It's the way that you see many of the prejudicial attitudes and cultures and representations of blackness infiltrating into even the new revolutionary rhetoric of anti-racism. And that because you can't unbind those two things immediately and overnight, that that's one of the big contradictions that you see in the early conversations about eliminating racial discrimination. There's also, I mean, the idea of racelessness, it does really draw to mind conversations that are happening in the United States and elsewhere in the Western Hemisphere today. The ideas of racial democracy in Brazil, which, you know, this idea is really unraveling as the as the far right uh, caucus in the Brazilian parliament starts to really use explicit racist and uh, and homophobic language. And also, you know, in the United States, uh, we just said goodbye to a president who who really rose to national to national consciousness after delivering a speech about there not being a white America, there not being a Black America or Latinx America, but there being a United States of America. Um, so there's a kind of disintegr- disintegration of this rhetoric throughout the region that's happening now. This um, Communist Party member near the end of your article who uh, told Yusimi Rodriguez Lopez um, that. Uh, the Communist Party and the revolution, quote, made blacks into people. Um, so this idea of, of the inclusion of uh, black Cubans being like a form of charity has clearly never really disappeared. And that's kind of the, the point that you make with these images. Um, it's also clear, though, that it's present in, in the language of people who were a part of the revolution or people who are living in this time um, after Castro's death. So I wonder, have you, how much have you um, kind of encountered language around the region that tends to reflect the same sort of continuity of anti-blackness or racism or these um, infantilizing ideas about black people and how you see Cuba as um, either, you know, reflective of a trend in some ways or, or perhaps exceptional in other ways? 
This is another really great question. I think one of the things I teach a class on Afro Latin America, in which we talk about sort of all of these ideologies together, right? So it's going to be a class where it talks about Latin America, but we're looking at especially countries that have large populations of people of African descent. And I think the root of the question that you're asking, and that what I talk to my students about is why did ideologies like racelessness or racial democracy or mes- and racial democracy in Brazil or mestizaje in Mexico or again, we see it in Colombia as well. Why did these ideologies arise? And they arose out of a moment in both the 18th and 19th century when newly forming Latin American countries were either fighting for independence against Spain and looking for people and bodies to fight those wars and recognizing that they also had slavery, right? So here you are, it's the sort of the combination of the abolition of slavery and the end of slavery and the forming of new republics via colonial wars against Spain, that we see the rise of these ideologies. So for example, one of the things that we know is that initially in Cuba, when they, in 1868, when they had the initial call for, okay, we're going to fight against Spain for independence, is that slave masters free their slaves and say, okay, now you're free, you'll fight with us. Right. But as soon as you connect initially inclusion into the nation with fighting for Spain and then this idea that we gave you that freedom, you're already setting up you're setting up sort of a discourse that the reason you have freedom is because you're supposed to be a particular type of grateful patriotic soldier. And this happens throughout the rest of Latin America, too. In many ways, the wars for independence and the end of, Ab- um, the end of slavery happen together in Colombia, in, Bra- you know, in Brazil, and lots of these other places. So what you see happening is that you see Creoles, so um, Latin Americans who are people of Spanish descent but born in Latin America, fighting for their independence, and they need bodies for, to fight that war, and they need people who are going to be willing to work with them. So I like to talk to people about, like, on one hand, it was progressive at its time to eliminate slavery, obviously, and to include people of African descent and people of mixed, mixed descent into the nation as citizens. Oftentimes, when I talk about it being progressive, we're talking about these are uh, countries that end up providing uh, universal suffrage, right, that end up providing... Um, black war veterans with all sorts of opportunities. So it's progressive the ways that they are including people of African descent so early on into the building of their republics in Latin America. We don't see that in the United States. At the same time, if it started out as a pragmatic or strategic idea, and if it's coming at the end of slavery, an institution that was built on the idea that people of African descent were not equal and couldn't be equal to uh, white Creoles and Spaniards in Latin America, then there's no way that these ideologies were even set up to put, to allow for racial equality that people are asking for then and now. So I think this becomes a really interesting idea. So then if we trace that thread, right, whether it's in Brazil or Colombia or Mexico or Cuba all the way to the present, then we have an ideology that started out as pragmatic, potentially setting up a, a sort of patron-client relationship of, right, you should be grateful and patriotic soldier. Um, Ada Ferrer talks about the ideal black insurgent in her book, Insurgent Cuba. Like, so we're tracing that idea all the way to the present. Then, then when we wonder why ideologies of racial democracy and racelessness seem like they have flaws or that they have contradictions inside of them, it makes complete sense when we know their histories. That said, I think it's really interesting the ways that ideologies of racelessness and racial democracy in Latin America come out of the the 18th and 19th century, but we don't see that same ideology in the United States until much more 
the present day, right? Sort of the 90s and this rise of colorblind multiculturalism, and you reference Obama's 2004 speech. But what I would say is despite, obviously, all of these different moments have their own historical context, and they have their own usefulness and sort of what you can, we can look at why they emerged. But the one thing that they do have in common, and that I think is really dangerous, and I tell my students this all the time, it's fine if we want to have a goal of a colorblind society. It's fine if we want to have a goal of saying everybody is the same, we don't see color. The problem is, is if we declare that that is the case before we have made any of the changes that will get us there. Because we know that all of the countries in the Americas are former colonies and former slave societies, and that those legacies have a long or have a long impact. And we haven't actually dealt with the legacies of slavery and colonialism in the Americas enough to even begin to say that how we could create colorblind, raceless, or racial democracies. In the 1960s in Cuba, you talk about two two uh, black intellectuals, Walterio Carbonell and Juan Rene Betancourt, who uh, who both wrote about kind of the the exclusion of African descended people and African culture from a larger narrative of Cuban history and and, uh, cultural history. Uh, There's a contrast with the U.S. there as well. Carbonell specifically is pointing out the exclusion of any kind of research into African culture as part of uh, Cuban history and Cuban cultural history. Um, And then later, you know, the the two of them are uh, unceremoniously uh, banned or, or Carbonell experiences this internal exile that you write about. So there's a, there's a narrative that's being drawn out here by the leaders of the revolution of racelessness, of perhaps a kind of racial democracy. And then there's the violent exclusion of black voices from that conversation and, uh, the kind of unwillingness to recognize any sort of complication of that narrative. So one of the things that's really interesting about Cuban history is if you look throughout the 20th century, in some ways, Afro-Cuban culture has always been an important part of Cuban national identity. The Afro-Cubanismo movement in the 1920s and 30s is a really important example of the ways that Afro-Cuban music and literature and culture was elevated, celebrated um, by all Cubans. And I do think that especially if we even think about present day religious practices and the numbers of Cubans of all skin colors who participate in Afro-Cuban religious practices, Santeria, Palomante, is that what you see is that Afro-Cuban culture is embedded in Cuban national culture. And I think that is probably a really important distinction with the United States, even though I don't often like to make comparisons. I do think that most Cubans are aware of and participate in some type of Afro-Cuban culture on a daily basis. So I don't think, I'm not trying to make an argument about this um, complete silencing or exclusion of all of Afro-Cuban culture. I think what I was trying to talk about is specifically with Walterio Carbonell and Rene Bet- um, Juan Rene Bentancourt, is that the book tries to trace, especially in the second chapter, what happens to Black activists when they encounter the revolution. And so it takes a long history looking back at the different ways that Afro-Cubans have participated in political activism in, in Cuba. So it looks at black social club leaders, black and mulatto social club leaders, and the ways that they had interact with a variety of Republican presidents and administrations. It looks at black communists and labor leaders and talks about the different ways that Afro-Cubans had been large members of the early Communist Party in the 30s and 40s, and that the Communist Party had always advocated for um, an anti-discrimination law 
that they had advocated for um, sugar workers and cane cutters who were predominantly Afro-Cuban. And that's one of the places that you saw a lot of black activism. Um, And then it also looks at a group of people who I call Cubans who are using a black consciousness approach. And I talk about them as being slightly different than the other two, mainly because I'm talking about a group that was really interested in a type of autonomous black political activism, as well as being willing to talk about blackness as an important national entity in and of itself. And so I'm talking and they're different because they trace their lineage a little bit further back to the 1912, um, the 1908 Partido Independiente de Color, the PIC, the Independent Party of Color. And this is an organization that was founded by black war veterans in 1908 because they felt like the demand, the promises that they were made for fighting in the Cuban Wars for independence were unmet and that they wanted to receive the pensions employment um, opportunities that had been promised to them as people who had laid down their sort of life and limb for Cuban independence. So when this happens in 1908, one of the things is this is one of the moments in Cuban history where racelessness is mobilized in order to counter a political threat. And so what's interesting is the PIC wasn't just a threat because they were black. They were a threat because they potentially would take votes away from the two existing political parties at the time, mm-hmm. the liberal party and the conservative party. And both of those parties had many black voters who supported them. But if you have the Partido Independiente de Color that comes along, there's a chance that they're going to take away votes. And so I think this is both about political strategy as well as being about blackness. So the president at the time, um, Jose Miguel Gomez, ends up calling that the, the PIC racist. There's a law that's passed that says you cannot have political parties based on race. Um, and so they're not allowed to participate in the upcoming election, right, in 1912. So when they lead a protest and they march and they have arms, of course, because they're black veterans, when they lead this protest, they're massacred by the um, by the Cuban government's army. After that, you don't see autonomous black political organizing in Cuba from that moment. Right. When I pick up this story in 1959 and I look at someone like Juan Rene Bentancourt, who says specifically that he believes in a negrista is his word organization, a black organization that is led by black people. You can see how his version of anti-racism, which wants to put blacks into these sort of positions of authority and questions why they're not more black leaders in the revolutionary leadership, looks similar to what people saw as the threat of the, of the PIC in 1908. Right. So he's censored in silence, both because of obviously his interest in Afro-Cuban culture, but a lot of it is about the ways that he is trying to pick up a type of anti-racism that puts black leaders in at the center that wasn't that didn't fit into Cubans versions of racelessness. And I would say that he had critics among both black and white Cubans. So it's important to know in that chapter that all blacks and mulattoes in Cuba and all Afro-Cubans don't have one version of anti-racism and don't have one version of what this should look like. So then what happens with Walterio Carbonell is he's also critiquing how one of the things that happens in 1959 is there's this idea that we have to invent a new Cuban culture. But thus far, our culture has been predominated by U.S. intervention and influence. And that if we want to create a new culture as a part of the revolutionary process, everyone has to ask, well, what culture will we create? And many people wanted to go back and sort of hold up these particular 19th century writers and Cubans who had been um, successful in that period 
And Walterio was like, Carbonell was very much like, wait, but some of those people were slave owners and some of those people didn't want independence from Spain. And why would we think of that as our only Cuban culture? So he was saying that we should have looked at maybe we should celebrate the leaders of the PIC for what they were trying to do to make Cuba a more equitable society. Maybe we should celebrate the leaders of um, slave rebellions in the 19th century. And yet that was a type of a revising of Cuban history that revolutionary leaders, as well as many Cubans, black and white, were not ready for at that period. And so that is the type of silencing and censoring that I wanted to talk about. The other thing that happens that I think is really interesting in the 1960s is that many Afro-Cuban cultural practices are put into the category of folklore. So yes, they are seen as a part of Cuba's national identity, but they're sort of seen as a way of being in the past. And this included Afro-Cuban religious practices. This is in, and this included um, type, ver, relationships to Afro-Cuban culture, medicinal practices, so on and so forth. And so I think Walterio Cabernet was also saying, no, 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 this is a part of our living and breathing present. Why would we put all of that into the category of folklore? And then we say that the other stuff is culture. So there became this debate about that too. Um, so it wasn't so much that Afro-Cuban cultural practices are completely completely silenced or erased as much as that they were there was there was always a sense that 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 mixture of of black of african and spanish that created the cuban cultural identity never was a balanced or an equal mixture it was always a mixture that elevated european and spanish practices and cultural practices more i wonder um near the near the end of your article you do bring up um the afro-cubana um, <clears throat> Afro-Cubanas project, which is led by Afro-Cuban women. Um, so I know that your focus is on a history of racism and anti-racism in Cuba, but this, um, turn to women's led movements, um, makes me wonder, uh, kind of about the, the, a feminist movement in Cuba, what perhaps that looks like. Um, I, I'm specifically thinking about this because it's been an issue in feminist movements in the U.S. that black women's voices have not been appreciated, that they've been accused of infighting when they try to advocate for specifically black interests, um, that feminism in the U.S. has a silent white before it. Um, and so I wonder about these these Afro-Cuban women's groups uh, mobilizing specifically for Afro-Cuban interests uh, and how that um, perhaps looks especially in context of the of the blogs and this twenty um, first century movement towards transnational solidarity uh, in these different groups. While I was in Cuba, I was really honored to get to participate and work with the Afro-Cubanas working group while I was there. And this was an organization that was founded in sort of the mid-2000s that began initially as women meeting in each other's homes and supporting themselves through the very dire economic crisis that Cuba went through after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1989. And it evolved into being an organization that was very much an activist organization that sees itself as doing both community work, but also contributing to the intellectual movement of rewriting Cuban history and inserting books, lectures, and information about Black and Mulata women into that. So it was really an honor to get to work with them. And one of the things that I talk about both in the epilogue of the book and then also at the end of this piece that I wrote for NACLA was the different ways that these women are thinking about combating stereotypes against Black women in particular. So one of the things that they talk about when you go to their meetings is they're like, well, if you turn on TV, the only place that you see a Black woman on TV is that she's either a mammy figure, a slave in some movie 
movie about slavery, or maybe she is a domestic servant in some present day movie that you don't see Afro Cubanas, right? Black and mulatta women in, um, sort of main character roles that you don't see them as being the center of the protagonist in stories on TV. So that was one. They also talked about how many, there were so many negative stereotypes and jokes about black women, right? Like one, uh, one white woman is worth more than 20 black women or how people would talk about black women as sort of like vultures and sort of using all this sort of negative um, language. And so they talked about the need to sort of push back about that. They also are really working to sort of promote a different sort of um, like natural hair movement in Cuba. That's something that you've seen much more recently. Probably about two years ago, Cuba had a natural hair competition and there was an art exhibit that was done about natural hair that's really encouraging Black women to own and appreciate the fact that they have either curly or kinky hair or locks or braids or whatever have you. So this is a really big part of what they're doing. I think one of the interesting things in Cuba about the ways that sort of an Afro-Cubana feminist organization has emerged is that it comes out of both of both the ways that they want to make sure that anything that's happening in the anti-racist or um, movement doesn't exclude Black women and doesn't exclude Black queer women. And so that's an important part of the intersectionality that they're trying to push forward. But interestingly enough, I don't find that the Afro-Cubanas movement is necessarily in in conflict or in contrast to sort of a white feminist movement in Cuba, because in some ways these things develop out of very different spaces. In Cuba, the women's movement that begins in um, with the even that first of all, Cuba has a women's movement that goes all the way back to when they were fighting for suffrage in the 1920s. But if we're talking about in the post-revolutionary period after 1959, there's the founding of the Federation of Cuban Women that's main objectives are to help women to become um, laborers and join the workforce in Cuba to provide child care and women's health care issues. And there's a lot, been a lot of really good work done on this. And in some ways, the, what was happening then was something that did include black and um, mulatto women as well. So it wasn't so much that this... And so that that was the type of sort of women's activism that was happening in Cuba in the 1960s. A lot of it was coming... Yeah, so that was the type of activism that was happening. So you didn't feel like black feminism had to arise in contrast to that as much as I think black women had been participating in both sort of a Cuban women's movement as well as Cuban anti-racist movement for a long time. And in the 90s, and with especially Afro-Cubanas, they felt that maybe their voices weren't being heard enough and that they needed to do some organizing on their own. But I do think it's important to think about the ways that these movements overlap. Many of the women who are in Afro-Cubanas are also like taking part in other anti-racist activist groups and organizations that are happening in Cuba too. Earlier in the article, you do mention um, in Sandra Alvarez's blog post that she talks about the experience of a man, Raul, who was jailed by the Castro administration, um, you say, for, for being publicly black and gay. It's it's widely understood that the Castro administration had um, a pretty homophobic um, and anti, anti-queer agenda and that a lot of uh, queer and gay people... Um, in Cuba at the time suffered because of that. Uh, I, I wonder what your experience has been of not just advocacy for queer black women, but also for non-binary and trans uh, black people in Cuba. And if there's any any conversation between those groups or um, or kind of just what the what the state of that discourse is. 
I love the Sandra Alvarez's blog. If anyone has an opportunity, I think people should definitely be following her. The blog Negra Cubana Tania Queser, Black Woman I Had to Be, is a really great example of the type of intersected activism that Afro-Cubanas is doing. Sandra Alvarez is a part of the Afro-Cubanas group, but the blog that she's doing is something that she's been working on um, for a long time. And she sits and she admits it. She says that her positionality as a Black queer woman in Cuba is what sort of like led her to want to write about, obviously, like you'll see blog posts about anti-racism, but you also mm-hmm. see blog posts post about anti-sexism in different moments where she's making a feminist statement. And then there are other going to be moments where she does talk about homophobia in Cuba. Another person that people um, that should people should definitely sort of look up and, lo- and look into more is Norma Guillard. She's also a black queer woman in Cuba who is doing a lot of work with Senesex, the national um organization for sexuality that is started in the sort of early 1990s and is now directed by Mariela Castro, Raul Castro's daughter. And this has become the center of sort of LGBTQ activism in Cuba. And it be- it's a really interesting moment of thinking about like the Cuban revolutionary leadership has admitted that it made mistakes about what happened with um it's homophobia in the early years of the early decades. We shouldn't say early years because it mm, went on mm-hmm. for decades in in Cuba. And so one of the challenge, the changes that they've done has been to create the center and put Mariela Castro in in to, in charge of it and put the full weight of the state between behind trying to have a sort of an anti homophobic movement. That said, that the challenge of this is that when you have had a revolutionary leadership and even maybe a society that's been homophobic for so long, just like racism, those types of changes aren't made overnight. And so there's really been a challenge in trying to get people to buy into this. But one of the reasons that um, I like working with Norma Guillard's work is because she has a really nice piece in Black Diaspora Review where she talks about what is it like to be a Black queer woman in Cuba. And she talks about the importance of there being legislation against discrimination and the importance of there being um, state support for this. And so really encouraging the state to even go further than what they've done with Sinesex. So I think those are really great places to think about the type of activism that Afro-Cubanas are doing to make sure that this is an intersected movement, which makes sure that it it fights for and represents the rights of LGBTQ um, people as well. One of the things that I always sort of tell students that's really surprising is that Cuba does currently pay for sex change surgery. Or so um, oh, if wow. you want to, it does, it's included. And so it's one of the, again, it's one of those contradictions, right? Like we're still trying to talk about a place that includes that into your national health care, while at the same time, right, has had this legacy of homophobia and persecution against LGBTQ persons for so long. Wow, yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, it's, in, it's interesting to, to, to think about the parallels between these kind of, um, these kind of pivots and, and structural changes that are made, even as perhaps the culture is, is lagging behind, and there, there's still conversations to be had, despite concrete uh, legislative and policy changes that happen. Uh, so, Moving forward in your research and, and also just looking at Cuba today, where, I mean, these, these blogs are excellent resources, I think, for Naklistas and, and for, for everyone. So we'll definitely include those, um, in the page, links to those in the page for the podcast. But I, but I wonder, uh, where are you looking, um, outside of these, outside of these blogs? Uh, where do you look to in Cuba today to kind of get a sense of, uh, where these conversations are headed and, and what progress or, or, um, hopefully not, but what, what regress might, might happen. I mean, I think my other sort of favorite resource is that I'm always telling people to go to Afro Cuba web, 
there's a website, afrocubaweb.com, that is excellent for sort of keeping people up to date. It's a bilingual website, but they do have things on there in English as well as in Spanish that have talking about up to date sort of articles that are written by activists, debates that are happening, the different um, Afro-Cuban organizations that exist and the work that they're doing. All of this can be found on Afro-Cuba web. Another place that's really interesting is Sandra Alvarez has a separate project that's called the Directorio de Afro-Cubanas, and that is more like an online encyclopedia entry where she is chronicling and trying to collect the stories and the narratives and information about a variety of Afro-Cuban women throughout Cuban history. What I think is most interesting about this is not only is she using new technologies to create this blog because she did a GoFundMe page in order to raise money to do the work, but also that it's a transnational um, endeavor and that she's including black and mulatta women who live both in Cuba and in the diaspora. And in some ways, I think that is what we're seeing in most recently is we're thinking about how so many of these movements are connected and how the transnational lives that people are now living in Cuba and outside of Cuba with new technologies, the normalization of relationships with the United States, that's really allowing people to now have even more open conversations than they were having before with people outside of the island. And I think those openings, you know, the increase in Wi-Fi parks, the the fact that even more Cubans every day have some type of access to the internet, I think that is what is where we're going to see activism really move to, is that it's going to move to a space where new technologies are allowing for more collaborations, more exchange of ideas, and more sort of uh, solidarities from not just with the United States, because I think people too often want to think about Cuba only in relationship with the United Mm -hmm. States, but with Latin America, right? So like we know that they there are anti-racist activists, activism going on in Brazil and Colombia. Like the NACLA report about this was excellent. But I think what we're seeing now is that the technology is allowing Cuba to connect with so many of those organizations and build what uh, you know I think people are thinking about as a revolution within the revolution, like the next step in anti-racist activism. Devin, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for having me on. That was Devin Spence Benson, professor of Africana and Latin American Studies at Davidson College, and this has been NACLA Radio. Be sure to check out our website, nakla.org, for links to the websites Devin mentioned and to listen to old episodes of the podcast. While you're on nakla.org, you should also subscribe to the Nakla Report and perhaps make a contribution to Nakla to support the podcast, the website, and the magazine. As always, you can like us at facebook.com slash nakla and follow us on Twitter at nakla. Nakla Radio is produced by me. Our web editor is the exceptional Laura Weiss, and our music is by Radio Harocho. Coco, Coco, Coco.